Please rise for the reading of God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Hear now God's word. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant, with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Happy New Year. This is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the first day of the new church calendar year. Advent is, the word has to do with the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, that God had promised a Savior even from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. After man fell into sin, he promised one who would crush the head of Satan. And so up until the time of Jesus' coming, All of Scripture was looking forward to that moment, and now we have the advantage of looking back and seeing that indeed God kept His promise to send a Savior. And indeed, there's another promise of a second advent of Jesus still ahead. So it seems appropriate that we should have a sermon uh, regarding why Jesus came into the world. And that is that He came into the world... To save sinners. That's what his advent was all about. Last week the sermon was on the subject of missions, which was broad in scope. And today I want to focus on the subject of evangelism, which is more narrow and a more specific part of that same mission. Evangelism is simply the proclamation of the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In this text, the Apostle Paul tells us about himself, that this is very personal, that he himself knew Christ as a Savior, that he himself had been rescued from his sins. He says that he was a former blasphemer, that that is one who spoke ill of God. Having violated the first table of the law, Paul had spoken against God, even though at the time he was doing it, he thought he was speaking for God. He was ignorant. He was mistaken. And so all of us blaspheme. That is, we speak against God every time we misrepresent who He truly is. We are the images of God. And so when we fail to represent Him honestly and truthfully, that is a form of speaking against Him, of not telling the truth about Him. Paul also was a former persecutor, which means he had also violated the second part of the Ten Commandments, the second table of the law. He had not loved God and he had not loved his neighbor as himself. He had done them harm rather than good. Moreover, in his unbelief, he says, 
that he had shown himself to be an insolent man. That is, he was arrogant in his unbelief. He was aggressive in his unbelief. Paul was like the men he describes in verse 7, where he says, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things that they affirm. He was sincerely mistaken. The truth is, at some level, this describes every sinner. Violators of both tables of the law, blasphemers, persecutors, and insolent. But in verse 15, we see the introduction of something that Paul says is worthy of all acceptance. This verse is the condensed version of the gospel. Nothing is left out. It's what Luther used to call one of the little Bibles. Three simple things are found in this profound text. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We find the Savior. We find the sinner. And we find salvation. The person of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our hope. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except by me. And so Scripture is emphatic regarding the exclusivity of the Gospel. I find it strange that people complain about this. How dare God offer only one way of salvation? And so people reject His free gift, and then they want to dictate to Him their terms for their own salvation. It was necessary that Jesus, that God, that God incarnate, do the saving. If He was a mere man, then that would be unworthy of our hope, but He was not only man, He was God Himself. The One whom the angels worshipped. The one who condescended, who stepped down from his throne to come to the earth, to the world. We could not have a greater Savior than God himself. Can't the creator of the universe restore fallen sinners? With the infinite and omnipotent, there's nothing that's impossible. What more could a sinner want? So this is why Jesus came into the world and all that's left for us to do is to proclaim this good news. Which is what we call evangelism. Now there are a variety of ways to accomplish this proclamation. First, let me make a distinction between what I like to call primary and secondary evangelism. For most of us, the primary work of evangelism takes place in our homes, with our family, with our children, This is where we have daily influence by showing the love and the grace of God, by teaching them what forgiveness looks like and mercy, instructing them and praying with them, training them, putting them in the broader community of God's people and educating them. We've talked about all of these things. So that's our primary work. It's where we have the most influence. When Paul asked, 
What advantage is there to being born in a covenant household? At that time, speaking of the Old Testament, so what advantage is circumcision? His answer is, much in every way. First, he says, you've been given the oracles of God. You've been given the Bible. You've been given the remedy. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what advantage it is. And so here you have a ready mission field. To be born into the church is like a sick person being born into a hospital where the remedy is present. The child gets the bracelet, like the hospital bracelet, right? That's baptism. It says you belong here. Now what? Then the doctors and nurses, the ministers, the parents go to work. Doing what? Ministering. Evangelizing. Applying the remedy. Here's the Bible. Let me go get the remedy. You need some of this. And some of this. And let me pray with you. Let me care for you. Let me love you. Let me minister to you the Word of God. And so what would we expect to see happen? Healing. The good news. I'm born right. I've got a huge problem. I'm going to die of this terminal illness. But I was born right where the remedy is. And it's given to me day in and day out. Now, of course, it's possible to be born there into a church, into a home, to be baptized and not receive the remedy. There are unfaithful doctors and unfaithful parents, nurses, people who don't apply the Word of God, people who don't pray for their children, people who don't do and use the gifts that God's given for that purpose. But again, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Paul told Timothy, he said, when you were a nursing baby, you had a mother and a grandmother who were believers and they taught you the Holy Scriptures from the time you were a nursing baby which are able to make you wise unto salvation. What advantage is that? That is our primary mission field. Why? Because then that spreads out to multiple generations. I had the great privilege Thursday to sit in a room with 21 people, four generations, starting with my parents. Actually, before that, sorry, 29. My wife just corrected me. Thank you. She mouthed the words to me. She's right. 29. We don't want to miss any. Why? Because somewhere back there, two Christian women adopted two little girls, my grandmothers, and raised them in the Christian faith. And here we are a hundred years later. That's primary evangelism. That's primarily how it works. We reproduce. We multiply. So before we ever go to the world, evangelism starts at our house. God's plan is to bless the world. It started with Abraham. And he said, Abraham... Let me tell you what I'm going to do. Here's the big plan. I'm going to make you and your descendants a blessing to the whole world. Yeah, I know you don't have any children yet. You're an old man. I'll take care of that. Here's what I want you to do. So I'm going to give you children. And I want you, in order to bless the whole world, I want you to go to your house. And I want you... To instruct your household, your wife, your children, your servants. I want all of them to be instructed in the way of the Lord so that I, the Lord, will bring to pass the rest of this. I will bless the whole world. 
I want you to go where I send you to do this work. Secondary evangelism goes out into the world to proclaim the good news that there is a remedy for this deadly disease of sin and this is where we bring the remedy to them and when, then we bring them back to the hospital, to the church for further love and care and nurture. Now there are many methods of evangelism. There is formal, organized Public methods. There are public, uh, formal, organized public methods. We have missionaries or evangelists. I think they're one and the same in Scripture. We have foreign and home missions. So we may go plant a church over here across town or, uh, you know, a hundred miles away, or we may go to the other side of the earth. We set apart people who do special work. We raise special funds to fund that. To, cover the expenses and to help minister. We have special, sometimes evangelistic meetings. I think those are legitimate. There's a time and a place for those when they're done properly. And then there is the informal, the individual, and the private work of evangelism that we've already mentioned with families, but then that extends out to friends and to neighbors. And, it, and, it's, partly, and it's not just word. It's not just what we're saying. It's what we're doing. That's part of the gospel, right? Hearing and seeing the gospel. I guarantee you, if you're a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you heard the gospel at some point, but I suspect long before you heard it or understood it, you saw it. You saw some Christian or several Christians, or you were raised in a Christian home and you saw Christ first, And then you got some explanation with words. We need both. You see, words without living it, without seeing it, they're pretty worthless. And just seeing it without hearing it is not enough either. We need both. There's literature. There's all kinds of ways we do this informally. And then there is corporate or covenantal evangelism. Church, worship, and I want to focus most of our time today in this foundation series about how, how do we as a local church reach the world with the good news or the gospel? What role does the covenant community of God's people as a group play in this work? As I mentioned, most of us are familiar with two types of evangelism, personal one-on-one witnessing, talking to someone about Jesus or public evangelistic meetings or missionary work. Unfortunately, these have become the exclusive means of evangelism in the thinking of many Christians. Moreover, we tend to think just atomistically or individualistically. We're trying to get this individual or that individual into the lifeboat. But there is a vital corporate dimension to evangelism that redeems not only individuals, that of course is critical, but also families and cultures and multiple generations. So it's bigger than just an individual. Without diminishing the importance of these first two methods of proclaiming the gospel when done biblically, I want to suggest that the Bible teaches in addition to these that much of the work of evangelism is done in the context of the covenant community or the church or churches. 
Solid church growth is ultimately the work of God. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So there's planting, there's watering, and then nothing happens unless God gives the increase. So then, neither he who plants, Paul says, is anything, nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. The means of growth is primarily done in the context of the people of God living lives of faith and fruitfulness. Primarily. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, your love, and glorify your Father in heaven. Israel, and by implication the church, was and is to be a nation of priests to the other nations. When the world looks at us, what does it see? Does it see the body of Christ, or does it just see a lot of individuals who claim to have had a personal experience with Jesus? It is essential that we develop a covenant consciousness, that is, a community consciousness, that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. That something is Jesus. It's the body of Christ. And so we come to see ourselves as the people of God. I love it when new church members come to that point, hopefully very soon, where they refer, begin to speak of we and us. Why do we do this? Instead of why do y'all do this? When there begins to be that awareness, we likewise want the world to recognize us as a people. You see, most people identify first with their race or their ethnicity or maybe their state or, God forbid, their football team. But we need to identify first and foremost as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters, regardless of all those other things. Those are subcategories. Our idea of incorporation or of a corporation comes from the biblical notion of the body or the corpus of Christ. Many individuals join together so as to be seen as one. The Bible teaches that we have been united by his death and resurrection. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And of course, we've mentioned this many times, the word community comes from two words, common and unity. We use that word to express other ideas like communication or communion. The idea is that various individual parts are joined together in common cause, and we are then unified in mission. I think that's true of of all our different local churches, Christian churches. There are people that Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church will reach with the gospel that the next church down the road might not. But they're going to be people they reach that we will. Partly because providentially God puts those people in our circles. Friendships, relationships, neighbors, people, co-workers, all kinds of things. And so God's using lots of churches. He's using us as a congregation. He's using us individually as in the congregation with different gifts, different ways of of showing the gospel and delivering evangelism. In fact, it was always God's purpose in the gospel to take people from every tribe and tongue and make them one 
in Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes to the Gentiles and reminds them in Ephesians 4 that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of of separation. It's the very picture of heaven as the elders sang a new song to Christ, saying in Revelation 5, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. This has been the work of the church from the end. God's just been gathering people from all over. All kinds of people. Different ages, men, women, boys, girls. Different races, different nationalities, and he does that uh, in lots of different ways, right? Lots of ways. Surprising ways. In order to be in a community, in community, we must first spend time with one another. We have to live our lives with one another. That's part of the evangelistic work. When we're here, you say, well, we're not out there talking to people right now. No, we're not. But we're doing something else. We're getting, we're establishing our friendships, relationships, commitments. That oozes out. It's just seen. Just like your family. If your family is godly and strong and lovely and you have a great marriage and people know you and see you, they find that attractive. We're to adorn the gospel as a church. We can't be seen if we're not visible. We have to spend time with one another. The church, the body of Christ, does have invisible attributes and aspects, just as you do individually. But like you, the body of Christ also has many visible aspects. We assemble, we worship, we serve, we love. In fact, the very nature of the one another commands demands that we live in physical community with one another day in and day out. John 14, a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another. Remember, love is about sacrifice and service. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my followers, my disciples. There is an assumption that the world is going to see the gospel. It's an essential, this is an essential element, if not the central element of evangelism. As we worship and live with one another, the world observes, and when we worship and live with one another in love, the world is impressed. It is even attracted to such beauty. We adorn the gospel that we, that we proclaim. Consider what we're called to do. How could we possibly fulfill these things if we only met for a few hours each week? In other words, this needs to extend beyond our Sunday morning meeting. And thankfully, I think it's true of this congregation. Romans 12, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Just think about looking at, if this is a description of a group of people that you were on the outside looking in and this was happening. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Isn't that attractive? Doesn't that proclaim a powerful message? That is, this, this kind of one anotherness is life. The church can't simply be a preaching station. There must be intimate union and communion. We are not mere associates. We are not Walmart. We are brothers and sisters. We're a body. We're a family. We're a kingdom. We're a dwelling place. So there's a lot going on as we live together in Christ and we interact with the world. Some unbelievers are going to fear or respect the church when they see the church acting like the unified community of God's people. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord on Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest, that is those outside, dared join them. But the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. A lot going on there. Their first response is, whoa, it's respect. not sure I can be a part of that. Then there was an attractiveness. And then the Lord began to work, to change little by little. Finally, multitudes, men, women, boys and girls being added to the number. Some unbelievers will be converted when they see the church acting like a unified community of God's people. 1 Corinthians 14. 14. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. One of the greatest testimonies I love to hear, I've heard it many times from some of you, uh, is when someone comes and says, uh, you know, I want to tell you, I became a Christian because I watched you. I saw you. I watched you for a long time. And I remember thinking, I want to be like you. And that's my story of how I became a real committed believer and follower of Jesus. I saw some other people following Jesus. Literally got on my knees when I was 17 and said, Lord, I don't know what they have, but that's what I want. That is evangelism. Now, some believers will be put to shame, according to 1 Peter, literally made to blush when they see the church acting like a unified community of God's people. It was, in this, it was in the context of this covenant community that the disciples first became identified as Christians. Acts 11, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. They were identified as a separate people. They were named. 
In Acts 2, we read in verse 40 and 41, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. This is Peter preaching. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So the preaching of the word, which gives faith, was one of the means that God used to save souls. Notice that those who were baptized were added to them. They were not just personally going to heaven. Rather, they immediately became part of the church. They were added to the covenant community. Their identity was changed. Their entire life was changed. They didn't just go to church. They became the church. In Acts 2.42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So worship was at the center of the life of the community of God's people. It defined them. It equipped them for service in the kingdom. And there's nothing optional here. In fact, there's nothing you do, as we've said over and over, that's more important than worship. It's what you're created for. So you got it? God wants worshipers. So he sends Christ. He sends the gospel to save sinners. That which was cutting people off from God. And now they're brought near to God to do what? To bow before him in worship. To be instructed. To be fed. To be made a people. Now they're made a people. Now they're learning who God is and how to worship Him and how to serve Him and how to love Him and how to love one another. And then God says, all right, go get some more sinners. Bring them in too. We want this to grow. We want this to be big. We want to fill the earth with God glorifiers. Now all who believed were together. Acts 2. And had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So they were together, they had everything in common, and they met the needs of one another. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, all their neighbors. Daily, unity, fellowship, gladness, simplicity, praising God and living in unity. Why are those people happy? Life is rough. Life is hard. Can you imagine first century? And yet, these people are happy. They like each other. They help each other. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, Acts 2.47. Now what happened when the world saw all of this is they were evangelized. They not only heard, but they saw the good news. The byproduct of the faithful covenant community living in hope with one another was that more and more people wanted to be a part of that community. Now, of course, there's still the necessity of personal evangelism. People still need to hear the gospel and see the gospel. Titus 2, for example, verse 9 and 10, exhort bond servants to be obedient to their masters. So in other words, you should be good employees. To be well-pleasing in all things, not 
answering back, not pilfering, not, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Colossians 4.6, Paul says, uh, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's very individual. It's appropriate to be praying about that guy at work or that neighbor. Lord, would you open an opportunity for me to talk to him? Give me the words. Help me know what to say. Help me to know how to love them. 1 Peter 3.1-2 Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some of them don't obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct, conduct accompanied by fear. 2 Timothy 2 But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but gentle to all. Able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance. Remember, it's God's work. So that they may know the truth. That they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So, what do you do? How do you evangelize? Well, let's start by making deposits. If you're going to have credibility with people, if you want to have an opportunity where you can sit down and say, can I talk to you about something that's the most important thing about our Savior? Now, you can do that with strangers, and we ought to do that with strangers, but you're more likely, God's more likely going to open an opportunity for you if you've made some deposits with that person first and shown them the gospel, shown them that you care about them, you love them, took care of some physical need, helped them with some babysitting, or gave them a ride. Or just all, There's a zillion ways to, to make deposits. And then when the time comes, in fact, probably what will happen is they will ask you at some point. You're different. I notice you don't talk like other people. Where, where do you go to church? Could I ask you a question? Make deposits. And I'll remind you of this too. Jesus often didn't close the deal. This is not a sales job. This is supernatural work. Jesus himself. What what happened when he spoke to the rich young ruler? He went away. Now, I think we presume that he went away and at some point he, he was saved. We don't know that for sure. But Jesus didn't chase him down. And ask him to pray a prayer right on the spot. Jesus sent him away. In Luke 14, Jesus said there were a lot of people invited that didn't come. Jesus, in fact, when he had the crowd, he said, let me tell you something, you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross. You're going to have to hate father, mother, brother, sister. You're going to have to count the cost. You're going to have to give up all your possessions or you cannot be my disciple. He didn't lower the bar. He didn't say, What's, how, how cheap can I make this? In John 6, we read that many followed him no more. 
How about the woman at the well or the Philippian jailer or the Ethiopian eunuch? I mean, we look at all these stories. What we're here to do is proclaim the truth, to love and to show the gospel. And now I'll just uh, wrap this up here. Let me read uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 12, and just a couple other quick things here. But as we've been approved by God, Paul writes, to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us. Is there somebody in your life like that that's dear to you, that doesn't know the gospel? Have you imparted your life to them? For you remember, brethren, our labor and our toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you. They were making deposits. Among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. The good news, as we begin this new church year, I mean really good news, like thrilling news, that Jesus saves, he came to save all kinds of sinners. Those whose sins appear great and those whose sins appear small, those who are trained up in the church and Christian homes and those who have fallen into the very depths of sin. It doesn't matter whether you're at the top or the bottom of the list of sinners. If you're on that list, then Christ came to save you. God's grace is greater than all your sins, all of our sins combined. As we begin this new church year, let's not only rejoice in the good news that we've received, but let us also remember to proclaim that same good news to those who are around us. They need it desperately. May we do so with words. May we do so with works. And may we do so with our families. And may we do so with the world. Let's pray. O Lord, we are a people of your word, and we are committed to follow enthusiastically, follow it enthusiastically and joyfully receive it, meditate on it, and abide in it, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And we remember the words of our Lord. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. I want to read an excerpt from an article that I think is very applicable to what we've heard and what we're about to do at the Lord's Table. It's uh, titled Sacramental Time and Space by N.T. Wright. Certain actions are like words. They say something, sometimes even more than words say. For instance, a handshake or a kiss is a physical act that communicates all sorts of things that would be quite hard to put into words. Actually, the most important things in life are routinely difficult to put into words. That's why we have poets and playwrights to explore and help us to probe the borders of language, to make new connections and create new metaphorical possibilities. Because if you have a wonderful experience, seeing a sunset, falling in love, hearing a symphony, whatever it is, you very quickly run out of adjectives to describe as somebody to somebody else what happened. That's how it is with a great many things in life. Words alone make us feel poverty-stricken. But when we can actually do something with our bodies that enables us to say, this is what it's all about, the result is something far more profound than words. Sacraments are like that. They are actions that speak, that communicate beyond words. Post-enlightenment rationalism still infects Christianity to the point where we think that reality is an intellectual formula with which we can tie everything up. We think that reality lies in words, when in fact the New Testament shows that it works, that it works the other way. The word became flesh. The point I'm making is that all Christian work in the world is a spiritual battle. It's not just a matter of fighting for people's souls and then moving on to implement pragmatic policies to sort out their bodies later. No, the powers that rule the world are still powerful and need to be reminded of their defeat by Christ on the cross. And it is only as we are energized as baptized people and equipped as Eucharistic people that we are able to go calmly and confidently into the arena of the struggle, whatever whatever it may be, from campaigning for justice to creation care. It's because we are, as it were, new Exodus people through the sacramental life of the church that we are enabled to do those things, not, of course, at the exclusion of prayer and scripture. The second point I want to make is about word and sacrament. Don't think that because I was asked to speak about sacraments today that I actually only believe in sacraments. The sacraments not only do not displace the word, but the higher a sacramental theology you have, the more you need a high theology of the word to flesh it out. That's why the sermon and the sacrament go together. The precise point of the sacraments is that these two are the moments when the story comes to life. If you simply took some water and, without a word, splashed it over some, someone, young or old, or if you simply broke some bread and poured out some wine without a word, those actions could mean any of a number of things. 
From the very beginning, as in Luke 24, as in Acts 2, the word and the sacrament, the teaching and the meal, together with prayer and fellowship, go with one another, reinforce one another, and energize one another. And I'd say that's certainly true of the broader application of the gospel that we've spoken of this morning. So let us now come to the feast and see and taste and hear to the glory of God. Amen. O God and Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Thank you for speaking so clear and loud and for revealing yourself to us. Indeed, you are faithful, though we are not. You spoke to us in our weakness, and now the joy of the Lord is our strength, for we now rely upon your great power. We are comforted by the fact that there are no promises made by you that will not be performed. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Your word is unalterable, and your power is invincible. In this truth, we find our hope, our assurance, and our strength. You promised a Savior, and that Savior came. By your purpose and power, you sent your Son into the world. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. By your power, you made us, and by your power, you redeemed us. You gave us new hearts, and by your power you shall raise us from the dead, where we will see our Lord in all his majestic glory and live and reign with him forever. Bless now this Lord's day for rest and fellowship and delight. Bless our meal and our conversation, and we thank you for being with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen.